Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en Español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Hey everyone, Kara here, and I just wanted to let you know right at the top of the show that the amazing science-based Annabelle and Aiden children's book series has just released a new title called There's a Dragon in My Garage, inspired by, you guessed it, Carl Sagan's famous dragon allegory. In fact, they just opened pre-orders for just a few days at dragoninmygarage.com. This book celebrates science, engineering, and critical thinking in a fun, whimsical way that kids will love. This is your chance to not only grab a copy, but get your name or even photo in the book. Visit the Kickstarter campaign at dragoninmygarage.com. Again, that's dragoninmygarage.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, March 7th, 2022, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. And we're going to be having a really fascinating chat today. But before we dive into that, I do want to thank those of you who make Talk Nerdy possible week after week after week. Remember, Talk Nerdy will, is, and will always be 100% free to download. And that's because I rely on the support of listeners just like you. I want to give a shout out to my top supporters this week, including Daniel Lang, David J.E. Smith, Mary Neva, Brian Holden, Christopher Pitts, Dudas Infinitas, Gabriel F. Jarmillo Gonzalez, June Sapara, Leonard Prince, and Ulrika Hagman. Thank you all so, so much. And if you want to hear your name featured on the show or access all of the great Patreon perks, such as ad-free episodes, all you've got to do is visit patreon.com slash Talk Nerdy. And if you want to learn more about the show and other ways to support it, you can visit carasantamaria.com or talknerdy.com. All right, let's talk about today's episode. So this week I had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Tessa West. She's an associate professor of psychology at New York University. She's a leading expert on interpersonal interaction and communication. She has a very impressive publication record and also um, a, an impressive record of grant funding, um, including from the National Science Foundation and the NIH. And she's the recipient of the Wegner Theoretical Innovation Prize from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. She also has um, kind of a regular uh, writing that appears in the Wall Street Journal where she talks about her fascinating research. So she has this new book. It's called Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do 
do about them. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about these different archetypes of difficult people you may have to deal with on the job and how you can navigate that landmine or that minefield, I should say. So without any further ado, the author of Jerks at Work, Dr. Tessa West. Well, Tessa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I am excited to talk about, you know, once in a while, a book comes across my desk, a topic comes across my desk that is so translational, you know, and I know it's kind of weird when we talk about psychology to use terms like translational science, because like most of psychology is translational (laughs) science, but it's so news you can use. And I feel like this is such a joy to be able to talk about stuff that the people listening to the show right now can, you know, immediately put into action. Yeah, I think the goal in writing this book was to actually take all the science and and kind of frame it in a way where people can read it and walk away with very concrete things that they can do to improve their lives at work. So you don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to have majored in psychology to understand what I talk about. It's just very straightforward, everyday tactics meant to improve our lives at work. I love that. I love that so much. So before we talk about those tactics, I want to know, so you're coming at this as a social psychologist, right? Not like an industrial organizational psychologist, or is there a lot of crossover there? That's a great question. I'm trained as a kind of classic social psychologist. So what I study is the science of awkward interaction. And (laughs) (laughs) just kind of broadly speaking, I sort of found myself in in this niche area over time, realizing watching people where they're really anxious and uncomfortable is is really interesting. And, you know, from everything from our doctor-patient interactions to talking to a boss about a raise, you know, there's basic psychological processes at play. Things like how we feel inside doesn't match the behaviors on our outside. Um, The more anxious we are, the more we smile. You know, these kinds of interesting contradictions I find super fascinating and how it disrupts communication in all different kinds of social interactions. Oh, for sure. And I've always thought about, so my, I went back to school for psych after several years away as a science communicator, and I'm actually focusing on clinical psych. So I'm mostly, you know, working with people through, um, uh, diagnoses. I I work with people who have cancer, working with them on, you know, their stressors in life. And what I find seems to hold true (laughs) kind of across (laughs) people is that who you are at work is not always, or I should say maybe some of the coping mechanisms and the skills that you use to manage your work aspect of of your identity or your personality does not always translate to, let's say, your relationships or your self-care or whatever. So you may have total skills in one aspect of your life that actually bite you in the ass in another aspect. You know, it's so interesting you say that because people actually are pretty good, or at least, you know, they try to figure out the tough stuff at homes with their spouses. They'll go to therapy. They'll learn to how to have conflict with their teenager. And then when they go to work, it sort of all falls apart and they don't actually use some of those same tactics when it comes to interacting with a boss or a coworker. We kind of walk in as if we don't know anything, right? We're like <laughs> just babies just born and plopped into this workplace. And we're like, how do I get my way with you know a difficult person at work? I, I'm, I'm great at this with my really difficult teenager and I saved my marriage even, but somehow I can't figure it out. So I think actually a lot of the skills can translate 
from one domain to another, but we're just not very good at like seeing that connective tissue. And, you know, it's there, but we just don't see it necessarily. For sure. No, that's so true. And of course, I can't help but think, you know, even just looking at the title of your book, Jerks at Work, and thinking about this idea of how do we deal with difficult people, I can't help but think of that ridiculous old um, Dane Cook stand-up when he's talking about how, like, every friend group has a Karen, and Karen's, like, (laughs) such a bitch. And then he's like, oh, I see you looking there, like, there's no Karen in my friend group. You're the Karen, you know? (laughs) Totally. And (laughs) And so I can't help but think, like, News you can use in case you're the jerk at work, too, because you may be and not even realize it. I think most of us, and like, I'm not the world's most optimistic person about humanity. So that's probably, I'll lead with that. But (laughs) I think most of us, probably all of us, have the ability to be a jerk and have been a jerk at work at some point. Like we all have this worst case scenario version of ourselves that probably came out at some point in the pandemic, you know, when we're under stress and we're anxious and we're not getting support. It's just really hard to admit when it's us because A, it's super threatening, but B, no one actually tells you. You know, so we think that no news is good news, but there's all this great research showing that even in exit interviews, people will just flat out lie to their boss why they leave. They always say it's compensation or work hour flexibility. It's almost never compensation or work hour flexibility. It's their boss sucks. And we just don't have a good way of having these conversations. So we avoid them. And then, you know, we talk about people behind their back, but we just assume no one's doing it to us. (laughs) So we have this positivity bias that I think makes it really difficult for us to even get the feedback when we are a jerk at work. Um, And then, of course, that just perpetuates the problem. And then, of course, on the flip side of that, and this is something that has happened to me very explicitly, and I worked through it in therapy for almost a year before I finally felt kind of strong enough to speak out and be public about it. But I worked on a television show. I used to be an on-camera I shouldn't say used to be, I still do some of that work, but um, I did a live daily television show. And um, my executive producer like hated women and gaslit the shit out of me. And I didn't realize it at the time. I literally started to internalize all of the terrible things that he would say. And it took a while before I realized I was being gaslit. So sort of the other side of this, everybody, this toxic positivity and nobody saying what's actually going on is this experience that some people have where they're made to feel like they're losing their minds. Like they're made to feel like they're so terrible at their job when they're doing everything correctly. I think that Gaslighter is by far the scariest jerk at work. And you have a clinical background. So I actually try to be careful when I talk about this person. You know, I I try not to get into why they're doing it because I do think it's clinical territory. And probably what you experienced was this kind of social isolation, cut off from other people, telling you to keep your head down because if you make too much noise, people are going to notice you. And the only reason why you're still here is because of me. But people don't like the way you look, the way you sound. You're kind of almost always on the chopping block. These are tactics that gaslighters use just to keep their victims from speaking out or from even fact-checking them. So by the time you're done, you know, you have completely fractured self-esteem and sense of reality. You have no idea what you're good at and what you're bad at, you know, where you fall relative to others because you've been cut off. So you don't even get that kind of social comparison that we need to figure out how to get ahead at work. And it's a horrible, isolating experience. And it's surprisingly common for people. I think, you know, we would think gaslighters would be called out, but the problem is victims, because they're not speaking out, because they're isolated, 
they kind of become invisible to everyone around them. You know, others around them don't realize it's happening. They just sort of forget that person is there or assume they're fine. Maybe they're a little bit strange or quiet or whatever, but they're not in the know. They don't know what's going on. And, and that part I think is like really terrible. And that's something that we all have to work at to deal with these kinds of people. Oh, for sure. And I sometimes wonder, like in 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 my example, I realized sort of later on that many of the women on the show felt the same way. I think that because I was the person in front of the camera, it was a slightly different situation. But all of the women behind the camera had various degrees, were being gaslighted to various degrees. And of course, once we all realized it, we had this common bond and we could discuss it and kind of you know, work together and work from it. But I wonder in your sort of research and in your experience, how common it is that gaslighters target women, people of color, individuals who are already dealing with microaggressions and a lot of kind of social pressures to conform to this very like white male dominant workforce. I think absolutely. I think what all these people have in common is that they already are a little bit socially isolated from what looks like the dominant person at work, like who has the trappings to be a leader, a white guy that comes from an Ivy league that has a well-connected family whose dad knows the boss. Those people are well-networked. They're in the know. They know the hidden curriculum to get ahead at work. They're never the targets of gaslighters. It's people who are the only person of color. It's women. It's people who don't have strong support systems who aren't in the know with the hidden curriculum they're always the target of gaslighters. So, you know, you don't target victims who have everything they need, social support-wise, getting ahead-wise, power structure-wise to win. You target those who don't have those things. And I think we have to be so careful right now when we're encouraging hiring, you know, more people of color, more women into these leadership roles, that we don't just have this revolving door of talent where we plop them in there, but we don't give them this kind of support structure to prevent these types of gaslighters and other leaders from taking advantage of them. And I think, you know, there's absolutely evidence to indicate that what you're saying is true, that these types of individuals are more targeted. And then, of course, what ends up happening is that the victim gets blamed, right? Because like, oh, because of your constitution, you were, um, you know, you were primed for this or you brought it on yourself or you should have been stronger. You should have spoken out. And of course, I'm, I'm wondering which sort of archetype this falls into. But one of the things I struggled with a lot specifically on that show, and probably it was tied into this gaslighting, was the classic experience of the woman at work who is confident and has a strong voice and a strong opinion, but has to kind of toe that line between if I'm too confident, I'm a bitch. But if yeah. I'm not confident enough, I'm weak. And it's like, there's no, there, you can't win sometimes. Yeah, I think <laughs> it is absolutely true. I mean, my colleague Madeline Heilman at NYU has been studying women in leadership positions for a really long time. And there's this like great research showing that like women in on the Senate floor, for example, when they speak up, it's almost always to echo another woman and not in their own self-interest because they've learned over time that if they become across as too self-interested, then their own constituents won't vote for them again. So it's not even that they'll be punished within their own in-group. It's like once they leave and go home, they'll be punished. But if they use that voice to, to sort of prop up somebody else, especially another woman, then it actually helps. That's complicated. And we're constantly having to juggle all these kind of motives and, and stereotypes 
Whereas men can just get away with just the very straightforward speak up self-promotion style. Women have to have all these caveats. Like I can speak up, but only if X and Y and Z occur. And you know, like everything has to align perfectly for them to not be labeled a bitch at work. And you know, not to, and then there's also the sort of like glass ceiling and, and, you know, glass cliff stuff that's going on as well, where we promote women and, and minorities into leadership positions where they have nowhere to go but down because the company is already a total disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I think that's an important point. And I know it's one that you kind of point to, which is that kind of culture, work culture doesn't occur in a vacuum. So you can, we obviously, we're going to spend some time pointing to these individual archetypes, these individual sort of work personalities that need to be self-aware so that they can work together in a team environment. But there's also corporate culture. And if the corporate culture is toxic, it's kind of I don't want to say it's a losing proposition because it's not, but you're definitely going to be like paddling upstream a lot. I think this is such an interesting thing we've seen happen in the last five or so years. Historically, it's been the case, like I'm thinking like baby boomer generation, that if the CEO was an asshole and the C-suite had a certain way of doing things, it just didn't really trickle down to everybody else. People were very much siloed off, but it's so different now that if the people at the top behave a certain way, you know, those like private chats going on, those sidebar conversations, the Slack channels, everybody knows about it. It's on social media. There's outrage. People take sides. And it's strange to see this like huge evolution of people who are, you know, entry level employees at a company like Facebook are outraged over what the CEO has done. That has not historically been the case that anyone even cared about what's going on at the top and vice versa. The people at the top even cared about the attitudes of people, you know, 10 levels below them on the corporate ladder, but now they have to care because there's power in numbers and there's reputation management and all these things. So you're definitely seeing much more of an interdependence between the culture at the top and the culture at the bottom than you ever did before. And I'm hundred percent on board. If the people at the top are kind of saying one thing and doing another. It just, nobody buys it. And if there's toxicity at the top, it trickles down. There's contagion and it, and it happens much quicker than historically we've ever seen. And I think, you know, there's some social science on kind of the role of social media plays and these kinds of things there, but it's definitely happening. Yeah, there's sort of a, a democratization of the voice that people who didn't have power, like you said, these entry-level workers before, they just they didn't have any power. Nobody listened to them. But now that you can amplify your voice so readily by, you know, taking to social media or by rallying the troops with these um, with these chat functions like we, uh, WhatsApp or like you said, Slack or or these different um, these different apps that are available to you. And of course, it's probably difficult for sort of new new entrants into the workforce, especially those, I mean, I struggle with this because I've worked as a freelancer for so long that when I do enter a, a more corporate environment, it's always really hard for me to know like what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, like how are you supposed to act at work? How are you supposed to, what can you say? What can't you say? That sort of work diplomacy is is something that I feel like the boomer generation was trained early on. And like, the Zoomers, I'm in between, I'm a, I'm like tail end of the millennials. Um, like, I don't know if we really got as much training in that. 
We certainly didn't. I'm also an old ass millennial. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm more Gen Xer in spirit, I think. Right. Um, yeah. Same. I'm grumpy. You know. I'm a grumpy millennial. <laughs> I'm grumpy. I tell people <laughs> yeah. to stop whining. Um, I sound old. Yeah. We we definitely didn't get training, and I. But I also think there were just very explicit rules of what to do and what not to do, and. You know, I think that the boomer generation was very much in favor of a, a clear hierarchy at work where everybody knew their role. And so because of that, there's some benefits. People don't like hierarchies. They don't like social status. But the research shows there actually are benefits to having these clear hierarchies at work because everybody knows what their role is. And when they get together to do work, they're not actually jockeying for status and fighting over these norms. They're just getting down to business and doing their jobs. Now, were they necessarily happier because of that? That's a different question. But they knew what they were expected to do, what they should and shouldn't do. But now... The, the way we talk about social status at work is it's much more malleable. You can have it one day, lose it the next. You know, it's something that you can't just have via birthright or your race or your gender or your, you know, being a first gen college student versus not. And it makes it very complicated at work. On top of that, we are very bad at work. And I think this is a problem of making e implicit norms. So what you're talking about, what you can say, what you can't say, who you can tease, who can't you tease, who whose meeting you can be late to and who you should never be late to, these kinds of implicit norms, I think need to be made very explicit. Because when you come into the workplace, and especially say if you're a first gen you know, person coming into, you know, I grew up very blue collar. So I walk into a white collar environment, I don't know that you can't dress super casually to a corporate meeting or something like that. You know, we have to actually make these things explicit because then it like equalizes these differences in how people were raised and the social class backgrounds that they come from and these kinds of things. Um, and then on top of that, you layer that we've all been working hybrid. So we, we went years without actually learning any of this stuff and, you know, oh, there's gosh, a whole generation of workers that like don't know how to do anything like at work. <laughs> so it's, it's so bad. true. And you issue. lose a lot. Like, I think we don't, obviously, we, this has been like the topic of so many op-eds. And so, yes, we are talking about it. But I, I sometimes wonder how much the sort of benefits of the flexibility of being able to work from home. Oh, I don't have to commute. That saves me so much time. And oh, my gosh, I'm, I, you know, I can get ready in 10 minutes instead of in 45 minutes because I'm only being seen from like the, you know, shoulders up and, you know, all the different things, which are great. But at the same time, I'm finding like, again, I work in a right now in a cancer center and I, I don't have these casual chats with the oncologists or with the social workers or with the psychiatrists in the hallway. I don't bump into people and say, hey, what do you think about this patient? Or do you think that this is the approach? So I have to make a meeting every time I want to do case management. And there's just so much pressure on every interaction because there are no casual interactions anymore. Yeah, I, I think I... I, I see our world right now a, a little bit akin to how I interact with my ex-husband, who I don't get along with well, but we have joint custody. And every social interaction is just managing a Google calendar or like a, a very specific goal, right? Like our son has to have basketball. Is Saturday better or is Sunday better? And I feel like I'm talking to my ex-husband all the time when I talk to people at work that I normally actually really like, but we just, everything is so goal-oriented. We don't have that informal interaction, but I think on top of it, just, you know, to get to your kind of oncology example, one thing we're missing is we don't know what other people think of each other. 
So normally you'd be able to watch two doctors. And I have this like crazy study right now with surgeons in an operating room and that talk about hierarchy. You don't know which doctors respect each other and which ones don't and which one is the most trustworthy one and the least trustworthy one. And, you know, whose opinions are heard and who gets interrupted. You don't get to watch those one-on-one interactions between other people. That's really critical for you to figure out a correct kind of social map of where everybody stands at work because everything's sure. in a vacuum. It's just you and one person. Or and I'm going in blind. Yeah, you I'm go going in blind. blind every time. Like I've got a patient who's like struggling and she says she can't communicate with her, you know, um, with her providers. And then I say, okay, you know, I'll go with you to a, to your next appointment and we can talk and I can advocate for you. You know, I'm her therapist. Like that's what I'm going to do. And then you're going in blind and you're like, I don't know if this physician is uh, a narcissist. I don't know if this physician is a bad communicator or I don't know if it's the patient that's not able to, you know, communicate effectively. It's like there's so many unknowns when you're, I don't want to say you're cherry picking because you're not cherry picking, but you're getting these teeny tiny glimpses of personality instead of it being able to integrate like you usually would in a workplace. Yeah, you're getting what we call thin slices. And there's lots of research on this that you can just look at someone for four seconds and you make an assessment of them. But like that isn't that you can only draw so much from that, right? And I think with doctors, you know, I've studied doctor-patient interactions and the biggest predictor of how a doctor behaves with patients is just how that person has behaved with their prior patients. You know, there's not so much even interpersonal between a doctor and a patient is just consistency and things like busyness and looking down at their charts instead of making eye contact, but they tend to do it consistently. So you're trying to gauge relational variables, how much this person trusts this person and so on, but without having any sense of how that patient interacts with others or how that doctor interacts with others. So you're missing three quarters, you know, so it's really hard. (laughs) And of course, this translates to literally anybody listening to this show right now that that is working on Zoom, like anybody and and not just at work, like students who are going to school on Zoom, like people who are in either a fully online or a hybrid model, um, that translates. They're missing, they're seeing their interactions through these thin slices. Yeah, I think also, you know, people are coming to me, they're like, I've been working with this boss for two years and I don't think she likes me. You know, and I'm like, well, what makes you think that? Well, because she always ends our calls 30 seconds early. It's just such decontextualized information. I'm like, well, what does she like with other people? I've never seen her interact with another person. Like, imagine that if you were in an office and you never saw your boss interact with another human being, just you. Mm -hmm. That would mm-hmm. be crazy. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And so you have happen. no reference, no point of reference at all. Oh, yeah. That's, it's so it's such a different thing. And I mean, I'm wondering, as you were working on this book, of course, it came out right now, sort of in the midst of all of this, but in some ways on the later edge of it. So how much were you thinking about the pandemic as opposed to just kind of the classical office environment prior to the pandemic when you wrote your book? Yeah, so that's a great question. I I signed my book deal two weeks before the start of the pandemic. Oh, God. <laughs> wrote it over the pandemic, and yeah. then it came out at the end of the, you know, initial right. of the, it came out during Omicron. <laughs> so <laughs> I saw everything kind of evolve. I think there's certainly times where some of the jerks that we deal with at work just, they evolve and they figure out how to work their magic in any setting. So I try to like make fairly general 
recommendations based on that. But then there's some that have really learned to up their game, you know, because people are socially isolated and cut off from others. Like, you know, free writers, for example, they can tell one group on Zoom that they're too busy, they can't get to their work because of this other group on Zoom they're part of, and then say the same thing to that other group, but not those, there's no crosstalk between people. So they just get away with doing this over and over again. So I definitely think some, you know, some people have learned how to thrive. So I've sort of had to figure out what types of folks are thriving in this environment and which ones are actually really hurt by it. But I think the one thing I learned is that we got really um, lazy about dealing with jerks at work during the pandemic for good reasons. We're overwhelmed with other stuff, but we lost our conflict management skills and we decided at the end of the pandemic that we didn't want to hone our conflict management skills. So we all just decided to stay working from home as long as we possibly could. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I don't want to go back. Those people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like you can't, you can't like run a marathon if you haven't worked out for a year, right? Like, mm-hmm. so you, no one wants to go back to the office and then all of a sudden have to do all this, <laughs> you know, yeah, like manage these relationships that they didn't miss. <laughs> so no, it's uh, scary. And it's, 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 it's the thing that I think we don't talk about enough that part of your work life. So I, I once had a therapist and I, I love this and I even use it in my own approach to therapy who talked a lot about sort of the three, a three-legged stool of mental health. And like, obviously on a three-legged stool, if one leg breaks, you fall, right? Like you have to have this foundation. And so um, he would talk about uh, work and work could be academic, it could be hobbies, it could be whatever, but basically like vocational pursuits, um, uh, love and play as sort of the three pillars that are intrinsically important for mental health. And I think we often think of work as just your job, like you go to work, you do your job, but we don't think of all of the social and psychological components to navigating the workplace. Like we have this whole extra burden of of being good workers, which is figuring out how to not be an asshole and how to navigate other assholes. Like it's, it's a whole extra layer to, to doing your job. That's just sort of implied and, and people don't prepare you for it. Yeah. I think it's a little bit crazy if you think about it. So you have these assholes, you didn't pick them, you can't break up with them, but you're spending eight hours a day with them. Right. So it's like, imagine if we had a relationship with, you know, uh, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whoever that we didn't pick, we couldn't break up with, and we had to spend eight hours a day with. We would say, why would I ever opt into that? That sounds like a Black Mirror episode. That's horrible. Yeah. But that's what the workplace is. And and leaving is costly. So, you know, we leave, there's turnover, we have to start all over again, we have to learn the new workplace norms and so on and so forth. But yet none of us ever take a class on how to handle low-level conflict at work. I mean, I got a PhD in social psychology. I never took that class. No, not a single person that I've ever talked to from the C-suite down has ever taken that class. And so we just kind of make shit up as we go, or we try things that we read about. We try to just confront all out. We try to hide. We try to gossip. We, we drink too much wine. You know, we try different things because no one's ever taught us how to do it. So why would we know how to do any of these things? I mean, you're a clinical psychologist, you know, like you have to actually learn the tactics and, and, you know, practice and them practice. and get good yeah. at them. And 
And the sad thing is, very often, if there is a formal training, it comes only after something horrible has happened at work. And <laughs> it's HR punitive. is like, exactly. Yeah. HR is like, whoa, we got to do this training. <laughs> and even then, I wonder. So I'm curious because I'm, you know, I'm somebody who is very celebratory of sort of um, a, a constructivist worldview. And I, you know, I am existentially oriented, which is not always like, like, firmly evidence-based, but at the same time, I'm also a scientific skeptic. And I think it's really important that we recognize pseudoscience where it is, we stop it in its tracks. And I worry sometimes that industrial organizational, maybe not psychology, but the sort of like coaching industry is riddled with pseudoscience. So these people who are actually getting these trainings, they might not be getting evidence-based trainings. Yeah. In fact, most of them aren't getting evidence-based trainings. I think there's a lot of snake oil salespeople out there making a lot of money off of this, especially right now. Anyone can kind of, you know, call themselves a well-being expert, um, that, that you don't have to sort of have a lot of street cred. And I think it's scary on a couple levels. So one, a lot of it is just intuition-based science. It's like what we think might be true is true. And social psychology often shows that's not the case. In fact, intuition is often totally wrong. Right, <laughs> you know, right, completely yeah. goes against what we think is true is true. You know, but I think there's also this component of like a veneer of an expert. And a lot of us will trust people who have these, what we call peripheral cues of being experts. They have a lot of LinkedIn connections. They have a pretty website. They're professional looking. They have some like great quotes to support, you know, whatever it is they do. And so we hire these people. They make a lot of money and there's almost no evidence that any of these workshops actually do anything. No one actually collects data on whether they work or not. And, and you know, a lot of companies are actually afraid to collect that data. They don't even want that data to exist, so they don't collect it. And we spend a lot of time and resources going through bullshit training exercises that take up a lot of time that don't do anything. And I think yeah, people are learning also, your Myers Briggs type, and then yeah, you're learning your Myers Briggs. Like, like, who cares? You know, yeah. yeah, who cares? How does that translate to anything that actually matters? But then yeah. sometimes they're even worse, right? They just make people fight with each other, but they oh, don't God. resolve anything. You know, there's a lot of backlash. Um, they're costly, so. I actually don't think you need, and, I, and I'm going to undercut myself because, of course, I give paid talks and shit, but <laughs> I don't actually think you need to hire someone and pay them $40,000 to go through like some basic, if you, if you want, you know, some bespoke thing, sure, but some basic training, the science exists. It's out there. Right. It's just, you just have to know where to look and fight through the noise, which is very tough to do. And as someone who writes about jerks at work from a scientific perspective, I get a lot of people coming at me with like various lay theories that are convinced they're true. And mm-hmm. um, it's 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 hard <laughs> to convince I can people imagine. otherwise. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, I think on that note, it would be maybe a good time to then trans transition into talking about some of the sort of archetypes that you've identified in your book and that are, you know, more sort of evidence-based. Like you're you're looking at the social psychology literature, you're looking at the IO psychology literature, and based on um based on these observations and and sometimes even like cl- kind of classical experimental um investigations, you have sort of identified these different types of people at work. And these are specifically jerk archetypes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, (laughs) they're jerk archetypes. I think what they, you know, what they have in common is like some basic 
behavioral signatures that, Mm -hmm. you know, so I try to kind of make it clear what behaviors you might see in multiple types. So Mm -hmm. you can be both a kiss up, kick down or a credit stealer, for example. Um, And also just make it really clear how the social environment actually can breed these types and, and, you know, give them the oxygen that they need to survive. Okay, so so talk to me about some of these types. I mean, we mentioned the gaslighter already. I just jumped into the deep end right at the top. Yeah, and we mentioned the, the gaslighter. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know. So and intense, of course, that, yeah. that's one of the really intense ones that, like you mentioned, is likely linked, not always, because obviously we can't be armchair diagnosers here, but like maybe linked to legitimate psychopathology. Like these individuals might actually be struggling personally with narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder or some form of trauma that is affecting their ability to connect with people. Um, But it's not always the case that when somebody at work is a jerk, they're also mentally ill, right? Very often they're jerks because they just, they think this is how they're going to get ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, sometimes this is how they're going to get ahead. So they're not even off base about that. Right. Like it it works. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, of course it works. Someone's, you know, allowing them to do this. So I think the first chapter is a perfect example of that. So this is the kiss up, kick downer. So this is that person who is very Machiavellian. They, They kind of torture everyone who works at the same level as them and sometimes beneath them. But they have a talent. They have skill. The boss really likes them. They know how to seem like a team player in front of the boss and kind of do all their dirty work behind the scenes. And I think because of that, they're very difficult to beat because you can't just simply complain about this person to your boss. I certainly have tried. I got, you know, accused of just being jealous and petty, Um, you know, so kind of acknowledging their talent is a really important first step for actually learning how to beat this person. Okay. All right. And so what happens if you are that person? (laughs) If you're a kiss up, kick downer, you know it. So sometimes some jerks are accidental jerks. (laughs) It kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but kiss up, kick downers are very strategic. They tend to be high on, you know, what I call or what social psychology calls social comparison orientation. So they're obsessed with comparing themselves to other people all the time. They know who makes more money than them, who has a bigger office, who got the last promotion. You know, they know all of these little details about everybody. So they know sort of who they need to beat to get ahead. They also tend to be very skilled. They're great at kind of kissing up to leaders not by showering them with praise, but by doing things like finding incidental similarities with them, highlighting how they came from the same town or they're, you know, even wearing the same brand of clothing. These kind of little things that can ingratiate you to someone, but don't seem over the top and don't seem too syncophantic. And so because of that, bosses actually like being around them because they're not totally full of shit. They actually have skill and they know how to warm themselves up to the boss um, in a way that that makes them um, almost invaluable to, in some organizations. Well, and you would think that like a vocational coach would actually uh, would actually recommend kissing up and kicking down, maybe not kicking down, but definitely kissing up like that they would teach these strategies in order to climb that corporate ladder. Exactly. And we see this all the time. So any place that has a strict hierarchy, you know, I think of a law firm, for example, where only a handful of people are going to ever make partner. That is a place that's going to encourage this because it's zero sub. Not everybody can get to the top. If you didn't get to the top, then you necessarily are a loser, you know, in some capacity. And they encourage this kind of behavior just by virtue of what their kind of social structure, what their hierarchy looks like at work. 
Yeah, I think you see that in certain corporate environments, too, where there's a clear management track, like where there are the people who are always going to sort of be the workers. And then there's the people who are like vying to to make it to the C-suite. And it's a completely different um track. And so they get like corporate management training and they get and and of course these kinds of things are going to be recommended to them. Yeah, and so you end up with these leadership training programs that not only don't teach you how to deal with jerks at work, they teach you how to be a jerk and go undetectable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like yeah. here's the best kind of jerk you can be with, you know, getting the right people to like you. <laughs> so, yeah, I And is that why you sort of started with this jerk archetype because it is sort of the I don't want to say it's the least noxious, but it's sort of it it actually has some perks to it. Yeah, and I think understanding that your jerk has talent is a really critical first step in figuring out how to deal with jerks at work. And, you know, I really had, when I, I sold men's shoes at Nordstrom's in college, and this was my first encounter with dealing with one of these people. It was a really hard lesson for me to learn that my jerk was loved by so many people and had talent and was respected. And I had to figure out how to deal with someone. I mean, I was used to like, you know, being a teenager. And if, if you were a jerk, nobody liked you. You didn't get invited to prom or whatever. But in, in the real world, lots of people like you when you're a jerk. And in recognizing that talent, I think was really important. And then seeing how it's encouraged, you know, because it's not something that everybody hates, lots of people actually like. Um, and, and sort of recognizing how it can get reinforced because of that. Yeah. And if you're the person who's always going, Joe is such a dick and then everybody goes we love joe maybe you're Joe's the so dick great. You our know? numbers are so good stop dragging joe down ever exactly. since he got here we are the number one sales group and you know southern california blah 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 yeah and then you've painted exactly a target happened. on your back sadly yeah and i yeah. just looked like a loser who couldn't sell and was jealous honestly. right exactly yeah yeah, <laughs> so. yeah yeah and so so kind of step one is to recognize that even in them and of course these different archetypes there is a bit of a venn diagram here because i can imagine that the next archetype you dig deep into, the credit stealer, the credit stealer is a kick downer too. The credit stealer is absolutely a kick downer. I think the hardest part about credit stealers is they tend to be people we trust. So, you know, we tell them our good ideas, we brainstorm with them. Sometimes their colleagues, our coworkers, our friends, even our bosses can credit steal. And that's sort of like a terrible feeling, a punch in the gut. And they often will do this thing, the kiss up kick downers also do, which is they'll grant you credit for things that sometimes you didn't even really play that big of a role in to make it look like they're team players. So that if you accuse them of credit stealing, it just makes you look really petty that, you know, um, you just have to get care, you know, kind of hoard all the gold for yourself. You can't share it with the team. Um, and they're really good at doing that. And on top of that, credit stealing, credit granting is one of the most difficult processes we do at work. It's just, you know, riddled with ambiguity it's often actually very hard to know who came up with what when ideas are in the air. You know, actual work is easier to grant credit, but ideas are fuzzy and they move around and, you know, they evolve. And so that it gets to be very messy. Ugh, yeah. And I think almost everybody listening right now has probably experienced this in some form or another where they, you know, very explicitly uh laid down an idea or actually physically did work only for somebody else to like put a hat on a hat and then say, oh, that was mine to begin with. Yeah, it's such a demoralizing experience. And, you know, the best thing you can do about these people is actually putting together very clear guidelines of how you're going to assign credit 
and grant it before you even start. And if you do have one of those totally chaotic meetings, which happens, you have to note take and write down who did what immediately later, like not to, not an hour later, immediately later, because you're just going to forget. And what's going to stick in your mind is sort of who said the thing in the most eloquent way. And sometimes it's usually a white guy who gets the credit because right, or like just who said it the loudest. Like, yeah, it's like who loudest, said it the loudest yeah. and the most times. Yeah, <laughs> like and who the reminded most times. you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. oh god. Yeah, and that's why I know that you mentioned this earlier in the in the episode. But I I remember reading that during Obama's administration, there was like a concerted effort too because he brought so many women into um into his cabinet that there was this concerted effort of like when a woman or a person of color has an idea or makes a statement because so often a man will kind of take it and run with it uh, that that it was sort of a, a common practice for the other people in the room to say. Yes, as Lydia just said, what a great idea Lydia just had, and then reinforce it. Because the more times it's sort of reinforced with the credit in the moment, the more salient it becomes, I guess. Yeah, I think this is really critical at the moment of credit stealing. So Lydia has a good idea. Someone comes and summarizes it. Bob comes and summarizes it. The next person to speak up, say it's Nancy, Nancy has to go back in time and say, mm -hmm. just to just to remind us what Lydia said, because now there's been two people have, who have spoken and people are going to forget. You know, yeah. they, it's like the game of telephone. You only remember sort of one thing that you just heard most recently. So it's a lot of it is actually not even just echoing Lydia the moment she said it, but three or four people later when right. the idea has like kind of transformed and now maybe it's associated with Bob just reminding everybody that it was Lydia who originally came up mm -hmm. with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm, I'm loving this game too. So what comes next? What comes next? So the bulldozer. <laughs> <laughs> I got. I developed some very bad habits around the bulldozer during the pandemic. So the bulldozer, okay. you know, they these aren't good habits, but I'll share them with you. I think <laughs> most of us have done these things. They, they talk a lot. Uh -huh. They don't have, they have no inner monologue and a lot, people in power actually do this a lot. They come up with their ideas out, outside of their mouth and it takes them three minutes to say the idea. Whereas lower power people just say the idea. They've done the thinking ahead of time. Um, so that's kind of the, the least bad version of the bulldozer. The really bad version is the one that has an agenda. They're not getting their way in the meeting, but they have power and status and they go behind the scenes. And the way that they get their way is if they don't like the outcome, they'll question the process. And so they'll say things like, I know we held a vote at the end of that meeting, but you know, honestly, I was there and it didn't feel like anyone really had a chance to speak up. And then when we held the vote, it wasn't really clear what the vote was on. You know, no one really are clearly articulated that we were actually voting to hire this person. So I really think what we should do now is a revote. And then what they'll do is like, they know their numbers. They know they need to get two more people on their side to kind of flip things. They'll do their behind the scenes work there, bulldoze, threaten, whatever, because they consider the first vote like a straw vote, you know, and, and it gives them the power to do that. And so I think we have to, I've been bulldozed a lot. You know, I'm in academia, so this happens a lot with hires because when we hire a professor, we're stuck with them for 50 years. So it's pretty high stakes. Um, no one ever leaves. So you have to have just um, watertight procedures and you have to have a leader in the room who's willing to say, no matter what the outcome of this, these are the procedures that we followed. And I've been in this case recently, actually, where I had to be that person to push back and say, no, we followed the procedures. Here's exactly how we did it so that we couldn't get bulldozed. Um, but they're conniving. And, you know, my bad habits I developed during the pandemic is when I just hit the mute button on them. 
you know, <laughs> minimize, mute, minimize, go online shopping, you know, <laughs> and I didn't get bulldozed. I actually got found time, you yeah. know, go watch some yeah. Shits Creek for a little bit, but it's not, <laughs> but it didn't work because then they had worked all their magic and I wasn't paying attention. And then I had to like figure out what to do afterwards. But right. Right. And they were bulldozing in the background. Still. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They were doing all this damage while I muted them and was online shopping. But uh, <laughs> so I eventually had to deal with it. But in the moment it felt great. Not have to so, listen to them. <laughs> I can imagine that this sort of personality or this sort of archetype is very common in politics. Like it just, oh, yeah. it just screams the political kind of um, uh, path. And of course, you know, we've often talk about things not being a bug, but a feature, like the system yeah. is built around this. And so of course, these are going to be the people that sort of rise to the top. Politics selects for bulldozers. Yeah. I would say it doesn't even reinforce it. You're not going to get very far unless you can bulldoze. I mean, think about when we watch debates. There is a, a talk time measure. And, and, you know, pundits will talk about who spoke for more as a measure of power and authority. So bulldozing is seen as a, as a measure of strength. And so we, we learn that if you want to be strong and powerful and win, you have to bulldoze. And I think that, you know, that's something that we saw when Hillary ran the same exact amount of talk time was actually massively overestimated when she spoke um, compared to sort of other male Democratic candidates. So we don't even have an accurate perception of how much people talk. You know, no, we tend especially, to overestimate yeah, women and underestimate mm -hmm. men. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, that kind of human bias also plays an important role here. Yeah, there's a lot of good evidence to support that too. Like, you know, where scientists sat down and literally <laughs> recorded the number of words or how long, you know, somebody spoke. And I think that's why when you were first describing the bulldozer, I sort of identified with the archetype, not the bad version, like the behind the scenes version, but like you said, the more innocuous version of the bulldozer, like the person who who has the idea and sort of processes it out loud or who just like gets in there because I podcast so much and I podcast with four other guys on, on one of the shows that I do. And if you want to say something, you have to just get in and say it because they're never going to wait for you to say it. And of course, as a woman, I, I do think that throughout my entire career, unless I bulldozed a little bit, no, I, I would never be heard. So oh, it was absolutely. almost like a reaction. Yeah, you learned it as a strategy, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. it's just if you have to interrupt to be heard, that's that's what you learn how to do. And then as you climb up, we select for that trait. The people who interrupt are heard. The people who are heard get invited back to the meeting. They're who's, you know, who we think of when we're thinking of who we want to promote within. And so by the time you get to the top, there's just a lot of this kind of interrupting going on. But I think what's scary is when women do the exact same thing as men do, it's just perceived very differently in the workplace. Um, yeah, you know, we're the bitches. We're the bitches. Uh, a woman interrupting someone, regardless of their gender, is perceived totally different than a man interrupting. In fact, people don't even detect men interruptions, male interruptions. Whereas if a woman does, it's like super salient the entire time. Oh, for sure. She was like... You know, whether she was like hysterical or she just like couldn't, she was impatient, she couldn't wait, she was whatever. Whereas the man, well, he had something important to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's important to say. You, you, okay. can, you get to be an ice queen or hysterical. <laughs> right, There's right. Like One or the other. Yeah. One yeah. or the other. It's so fun. It's so fun. It's so the, the free rider is somebody I do not identify with at all. I do not get that. I, I don't think I've ever been this archetype. This archetype like makes my blood boil. 
Yeah, I'm really high on Protestant work ethic. I think it's like yeah. I, you should work your ass off to get ahead. Your free riders tend to be very charismatic. They tend to um, be social butterflies. And what they bring to the team is their ability to pick out the best restaurant that we should go to after the meeting and who <laughs> all we should invite to the party. And right. they have office gossip and they're super fun to have around. And so because of that, we put up with them. Um, yeah, they're a real pain in the ass because they are actually, their, their skill lies in social charisma plus picking out really competent teams to actually take advantage of. So free riders don't join teams where there's conflict, where there's disengagement, where there's a lot of spotlight on them and the boss knows something is up and is kind of chronically overseeing them. They find the teams full of conscientious people because the research shows that the more a free rider doesn't do their share, the more the conscientious team members overcompensate for them. And in fact, to the point where they're outperforming teams without free riders, the boss notices it and gives them, you know, bonuses and often even more work to do because they're so efficient. And so this overcompensation effect just perpetuates free riding instead of kind of weeding it out. And free riders then benefit because they get the bonuses and things like that. Um, and these teams also tend to have collective rewarding and they're full of people who like each other. And they don't want to complain about the free rider because it kind of throws off their mojo. Um, you know, so they, they end up putting up with them. And in the pandemic, it got really bad because everyone's working in these silos. So we don't know if like Tom from our team is just doing nothing with us or he's doing nothing with any of his teams because none of us see each other. So we don't get to talk about it. And I think that makes it very easy for them to sustain their behavior. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. It almost sounds... I, 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 
in my mind, but then I caught myself, it almost sounds like a free rider would be a great manager. But then I realized managers <laughs> do have to actually work. <laughs> but you if know, they didn't really yeah. have to do that much work, it seems like, ooh, they're so good at picking teams and they're so good at sort of like delegating and letting other people do the work, which managers aren't good at very often. It's, it's, it's their big downfall. Like a good Absolutely. manager should be good at that. I think that's like such an interesting connection because a lot of these jerks actually have skills and you just got to figure out the right place to put them. But you're totally right. They're great at delegating. You know, right. <laughs> they're, they're great at cutting up one job and splitting it into 12 parts. So no one person actually feels the load and that's how they get away with it. But a good manager who, who's not micromanaging and is in the loop can actually do that. They also have that kind of charisma, social connection it's really yeah. hard to fake and really hard to learn that we often look for in leaders. So maybe we should just pr be promoting our free riders. Exactly. Of like, to get rid of them. <laughs> yes. We'll stop promoting like the kiss ups. We'll stop promoting the, the gas lighters, all the, you know, we'll, we'll promote the free riders and our, and our corporate structure will just make so much more sense. <laughs> Except for when they're in the C-suite and they have to do work again and they're like, shit, I don't actually know any of these things. So, but. Right. But that's, that's when they just hire consultants. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. you, can always out, you can always outsource. That's the thing, right? <laughs> And they know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Okay. So we've got, we've got our free riders and then we've got just a few left. We've got the micromanager. And so this is actually a manager or is it somebody who's not even a manager, but is micromanaging? <laughs> you know, that's a good question. The way I wrote the book is an actual manager, but I think there's a kind of a jerk in between, which yeah. is the manager who's not really a manager, the faux manager. Uh -huh. um, you know, so the micromanager, what distinguishes them from a detail-oriented boss is that they are obsessed with detail about everything, no matter how irrelevant or relevant it is. They're always in a time crunch, so they're actually a little bit chaotic. They actually don't have their shit together so much because they're hopping from one person to another and micromanaging. They have a bit of like a frenzied vibe about them. And, you know, they do this to everybody, no matter how much actual top-down oversight someone needs. So some employees actually do need to be micromanaged. In fact, a handful of people I talk to that complain about the micromanager, then they tell me they made 50 mistakes at work. And I'm like, of course you have to be micromanaged. You made 50 <laughs> right. mistakes. But some people don't need to be. And you know they don't know the difference or they treat everybody the same. It's like a very kind of homogeneous approach to dealing with work. And you know, I, I actually kind of feel for these people. I'm not one of these people. I'm more than neglectful boss. But a lot of the reasons why they micromanage don't necessarily have to do with them. It has to do with how much control they have over their own time, how much management training they got, whether they're being micromanaged. And they, they tend to be very conscientious people at work, and they got promoted because they were good at their old job, not because they know how to manage. Right, you know? which and is so common. Yeah. So, you know, we should just be bringing in a free rider to take their place, but instead we're promoting <laughs> them and now they're micromanaging you, the poor soul who stuck with their old job that they were really good at, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it makes them feel better. So it, it's a little bit of a travesty because I think often their heart is in the right place and they're very conscientious and they want to do good work, but it drives everybody insane and everyone works the hardest, but gets the, the least done at work if you have a micromanager. Right. Yeah. It's hard to be productive when there's somebody literally breathing down your neck and telling you exactly what to do every step of the way and not giving you any independence. It's also hard to have a sense of self-efficacy when you feel like somebody's holding your hand through everything. 
Yeah. And they also like to make you feel like you're at a Sisyphean exercise at work. Like you push that boulder up the hill, you work really hard on something and then they kind of destroy it and make you redo it. And, you know, uh, I've talked to a lot of journalists who had micromanagers as editors and they're like, it's the worst. I write this piece. They edit, they bleed all over it. I rewrite it. They bleed all over it. It just happens over and over and over again. And they just never, there's no end in sight. You know, they do it until the deadline and then they do it again. And so you just have no sense that the work you're doing ever matters because you know it's just going to get torn down and built back up again about 15 times the next day. And that just breeds complacency. Like nobody's going to actually keep trying. Yeah, you just give up and it doesn't matter, you know, and they slide into your DMs and they text you all day long and it doesn't matter if you respond to the text or not. They just continue to text you all day long. So it's a little bit like having a robot as a manager, like a bad AI that doesn't learn yeah. because they're just not attuned to like social cues in the environment, telling them that someone is frustrated or disengaged or trying. It doesn't matter what response they're getting back. They always behave the same. Yeah, yeah. I actually have a, a micromanager on the board of my HOA. Oh, <laughs> we are we are not a fan. He is really <laughs> neurotically obsessed with very small details, and we often feel like he's policing us instead of supporting us. And yeah. like, what is that? You know, like you never want to feel like the person who's job is to promote and support the workers, I mean, and this translates to, to work too, is actually, like you mentioned, tearing you down constantly. Um, God, what a bad feeling. Yeah. Micromanagers think that everybody is up to no good and everybody is lazier than them. Right. And so I think it just really breathes a lot of distrust. Like they give off distrust vibes. They don't really trust what you're doing. They don't really trust that you listen. And, you know, that leads people to just say, fuck it. And they get yeah. very disengaged at work. And that's that's like a huge predictor of burnout, I think, in the workplace. That makes sense. And then on the on the other side of that, you you see burnout when you have a neglectful boss, when you have someone who's just not there to support you, someone who just never kind of gives you any feedback and you feel like a hamster in a wheel. Yeah, the ne neglectful boss is a really tough one, especially right now where people have like completely missed onboarding and they don't even really know their bosses. So these people just do this kind of bad cycle of disappearing act. So they're never around or not getting feedback, but they don't usually stay disappeared. <laughs> they, they actually micromanage when they feel enough anxiety. So then they show up often kind of the day before your project is due or at the 11th hour, they micromanage to feel like they have some control. And then they disappear again. And it creates like this heightened uncertainty. I mean, in clinical psychology, we talk about sort of uncertainty being a huge predictor of mental and physical stress and how kind of waiting for a cancer diagnosis is actually worse than just finding out you have cancer because we're actually quite good at coping. But uncertainty is terrible. And human beings are just not built for chronic uncertainty. Like that level of just cortisol pumping through our bodies all the time, not knowing if your boss is going to show up yell at you, disappear if he's going to come back the next day or in two weeks or never, that makes people really crazy at work. And I think they're one of the most kind of harmful managers to work with in terms of your psychological well-being. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And then finally, you know, we, we opened with the gaslighter, but of course, in the book, you close with the gaslighter. And one of the observations that sort of I made as we were describing some of these other jerks at work is that many of them have gaslighter components to them, like, you know, the kiss up, kick down or the uh, the person who is free riding or even the micromanager. They, they manage to convince you 
that you are the problem or that you are doing something insufficiently. Like there is this kind of gaslighting add on <laughs> to oh, almost yeah. every type. We get like a uh, little gaslighter flares throughout, uh, you know, dealing with jerks at work. I think kind of what's interesting about the gaslighter. So the other jerks are usually making you feel pretty terrible about yourself. Like you're doing a bad job. Sometimes gaslighters do the opposite. They actually make you feel like you're a member of a secret club doing something really cool that nobody else um, knows about. And so I'd say probably most people have an experience like you did, where the gaslighter makes them feel terrible about themselves. You don't really realize there's other victims. They're doing it to maintain power and status. But other times gaslighters are doing it because they're, they need you to get away with whatever it is that they're doing. They're stealing ideas. They're faking data. They're, they're like building some, you know, bullshit product that we all have to kind of believe in to some degree. And if we reality check, we would know it's not going to work out. So it's almost like a cult where you feel super special and people don't like to admit that often when they get victimized by gaslighters, it feels very good in the beginning because they make you feel like you're special and you're a chosen member of something that you were selected out of all these people to be part of something special. And the people that this works on are people who haven't really felt that before. They're socially isolated. Like we talked about, they don't have a lot of friends at work. They often come from socioeconomic, gender, and cultural backgrounds that aren't well represented at work. So they don't already have like this network and gaslighters see that. They see that they're isolated. They see that they're sitting alone at lunch and that no one comes by their cubicle to talk to them and think, okay, this is a perfect victim for me. I'm going to get this person to help me. And then you do help them because you don't know what you're doing. And then you can't escape without, you know, a little bit of bloodshed. So I think that's, that's the really kind of truly tragic part is in the end, unless it's purely victimization, often victims end up aiding and abetting in things at work that are not so great. And so it's hard for them to exit without kind of any any damage done to themselves. Yeah, it definitely does feel like the most sort of psychologically damaging. Like it's very hard to survive a gaslighter, just like it's very hard to survive a cult. Like you walk yeah. away with scars. Yep, yep. Yeah. Years and years of therapy to like help you get that fractured sense of self back, right? Yeah. yeah. Don't have that kind of sense of self. And it's it's really hard when that happens to people because you need some core kind of sense of self to be able to navigate any of these difficulties. Um, especially after you leave when there the, a lot of healing has to be done. Oh, absolutely. Well, I've got to ask you. So, so we're we're coming up on the end of the show, and I, I always close with my same two questions. But before I dive into those, I've got to ask you because it's been on my mind this whole time. It's very like neither here nor there, but whatever. Um, a, how much did you watch The Office, and how much is your work <laughs> informed? Like, are you always like, oh my god, there's that, there's that. Oh, oh, look, he's he's you know kicking up, oh, or kissing up. Oh, he's kicking down. <laughs> I love that show. So I love that show. I love the British version. I like the American version. Here's what's great about. That. They make the shittiest work situations funny as hell. Yeah. And I, I actually tried to bring as much humor as I could into this book because I think when we're going through this, we need to be like, we need to be able to laugh a little bit or it's just too painful. And I think, you know, like these little fights over irrelevant power, assistant manager to the manager, you know, yeah. these <laughs> kinds of things seem so stupid, but they're really common at work. And the way they handle, you know, gender issues and race issues and the awkwardness around all of that and the just the sheer cluelessness around all that, I think actually is pretty representative of what most of us are like at work. So absolutely. Yes, I love oh, that show. <laughs> love that. Love that. And then on the other end of that, probably uh 
I, maybe I should have flipped these. Um, have you seen the new documentary? It just came out on Netflix called uh, about Boeing called Downfall. No, but it's like number one on Netflix. What's the deal with that show? What is right, it about? So, I can't wait to see it. Yes, I highly recommend it because, of course, this is about the um, the what was it? The seven thirty seven Max, the two crashes, yeah. and how Boeing was like backtracking. But what they do so beautifully in this documentary is they show what happened when Boeing merged with another company in like, I think it was like the 80s or the 90s, and the total corporate culture changed. And it really exemplifies kind of some of the things that we're talking about, how when a new corporate structure comes in that has a completely different culture and that promotes, um, or or maybe I should say, um, uh, pushes down certain types of workplace behaviors and certain types of workplace interactions, that negative consequences above and beyond trauma to the to the uh, employees, but ultimately lives are at stake. Because, you know, you see these archetypes where these people are like, I don't want there to be anything wrong. So instead of tell me what's wrong so we can fix it, it's like, I don't want to hear that anything's wrong. Let's not talk about what's wrong. And that's like very dangerous when you're talking about the safety of human beings in a in a massive airplane. Um, but I, I really think you would enjoy it because I think you'd see a lot of these patterns in the discussions in the documentary. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. I'd say kind of just to end, a lot of these problems will eventually work up to something catastrophic, but it's more like a frog in boiling water where they're small, they're day-to-day, culture changes slow, and it's the additive effects to these that get you into a place like where Boeing was. It's not even like one decision was made, right? It's just daily ways of thinking and interacting, which are cumulative and eventually lead to something horrible. And that's <laughs> why it's so hard to say- about quote or, or like point and say it's your fault and it's so yeah. hard like it's like when people go how did this happen and it's like oh there were a thousand things went wrong but the culture yeah. allowed for those things to go wrong yeah and uh, like look yeah. at 10 years of it it took a long time for it to get that bad oh for sure for sure yeah so so okay so tessa um uh, thank you a thank you so much for being here we're not quite done yet because i always close my show by asking my guests the same two questions and of course because of your knowledge and because of the work that you do i'm gonna be fascinated by how you approach this um i want you to approach this in any way that feels relevant or salient for you so this could be a personal answer the context could be global it could have to do with your work it could be cosmic it doesn't matter so the first question is when you think about the future in whatever context is relevant to you what is the thing that's keeping you up the most at night? The thing that you're most concerned about, maybe a little pessimistic, maybe even cynical about, you know, where are you like, Ugh. and then on the flip side of that, so we end on a slightly more positive yeah. note, where are you finding your optimism? What are you looking forward to? Okay. So the answer to the first question is, I am very worried about cancel culture and our, our complete unwillingness to have difficult conversations in a way that allows for mistakes. And I don't mean that I think obviously racism, sexism, there's no place for any of that, but tiny little errors in navigating these difficult things at work. People are terrified to have these conversations because they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. So they don't talk about them at all. And I'm very worried that we're incentivizing that approach at work and everywhere in our lives, actually. Social media is is brutal um, for that. So I'd say that keeps me up at night a little bit. I'm worried about that. What am I optimistic about? That's harder for me because I'm not an optimist. Um, 
I am optimistic that people are actually missing social interaction and that there's kind of this resurgence. And a lot of this is like, you know, the signs of happiness and these kinds of things I don't typically glom onto that are really about social connection. And I think we're starting to realize the importance of that. And I have a little kid who gets, he plays iPad all day, but social connection is the most wonderful thing he experiences. And I do think that we're starting to realize how important it is and how the small things like having dinner with someone or having a chat with someone can actually really improve our well-being. And I think people are just kind of much more willing to admit that and kind of take the step to do those things. Yeah, love it. All right, everyone. The book is Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them by Dr. Tessa West. Tessa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Of course. And everyone listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.